0: After I quit my job as a social worker, I worked in real estate for a little while. It wasn't really me, but it was fine. Then in 2016, I had two major life changes that flipped my world upside down. First, my son was getting ready to head off to college. I was about to be a young, empty nester. Then a month before my son's high school graduation, My father died unexpectedly. I didn't know how to manage my grief. I inherited some money from my father. I had some savings. So I decided to buy a one-way ticket to Thailand, a place I knew would be outside of my comfort zone. I ended up traveling from Thailand to Bali and Indonesia and living in Japan for nine months. I didn't speak the language in any of those countries. So everything got really quiet. It was the first time in a long time I was alone and in silence for long stretches of time. I could either fill that silence with distractions or I could lean into it. I leaned into it. Before all this, I meditated intermittently. It was really random, like 15, 30 minutes, sometimes an hour. But when I was living overseas, I started meditating regularly. And the silence and meditation, that was a game changer for me because it created emotional and mental space that I hadn't had before. I was able to work through my feelings of depression and anxiety, and eventually, I realized I was becoming less emotionally reactive. I used to take a lot of things personally, as if people were doing things on purpose to hurt me. But with some mental space, I now understood that none of it had anything to do with me. Essentially, I got better at regulating my emotions. And by the time I returned to the US, I felt calmer and more at peace. I'm Francis Lees, and this is Turning Points, a show about navigating mental health sponsored by Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare and Tufts Health Plan. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and also, as you can already tell, a big fan of mindfulness. In this episode, we're gonna dig deep into mindfulness practices like yoga, meditation, and a specific therapy that is all about the mind-body connection. First, we'll hear from a young woman who had a traumatic experience in college. And before we move forward, I should say this might be triggering for some because there's a mention of sexual assault. However, our conversation focused on the healing that came after that trauma. Hi, Deborah. Thank you for taking some time to chat with us today. We're really excited to talk to you about our favorite topic, mental health. Can you say what your full name is and a little bit about your yoga practice and the mindfulness practices that you do on a regular basis?
1: Hi everyone. My name is Deborah Johnson. I am currently in social work school, so my entire life kind of revolves around mental health. But outside of school, I do have a really consistent yoga practice. I just finished my yoga teacher training through the support of you Good Sis, a local yoga collective here in Boston. I feel like mindfulness has been a part of my life since I was very, very little coming from a South Asian family. But as I've gotten older, it's become a lot more intentional. And right now it looks like meditating pretty consistently, at least every other day, but also incorporating it into the way I move through the world, how I eat my food, the way I make my art. I'm also a visual artist and a writer. And so it really blends into every part of my life. And it, changes my life. It makes it a lot
0: better. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about your mental health journey. You know, when did you realize you needed to take some time to focus on your mental health?
1: So I went through a very rigorous high school program. And so I think I had ingrained in me like this ability to like do everything all the time. And then I went to undergrad at Oberlin college and That kind of relayed there. I went on the scholarship program called Posse. And I think I also felt like a desire to do a lot of things all the time. I had so many interests. I still do. And when I was in college, I always had a full class load. I did spoken word through high school and college. I started dancing in college. Like I was on student government. It was too many things retrospectively, but that was also the culture of the school we went to. And my sophomore year... I identify as someone who's a sexual assault survivor and I experienced an incident my sophomore year. You know, it happened. I was able to like receive support right away from my family and my friends and the institution. But on a personal level, I was like, all right, well I have an internship to go do in DC. Like nothing better get in the way of me doing this internship. I wanna go to law school. I don't wanna pause essentially. That was my immediate reaction. And it wasn't until two years later, my senior year of college, when everything was just building up from that point. You know, I was taking on more and more and more. And I couldn't tell at the time while everything was happening that I. Really, I think it's twofold. One, I wasn't ready to process everything that I had to process. And I think that's quite normal. And I also was not pausing. (laughs) I was not stopping because I think I was very nervous about if I stopped, what would happen. And it was really evident to the people around me as well that I wasn't doing as well. I was far more agitated. I was tired all the time. I had to take the rest of that semester to step back from leadership positions. I lowered my class load. And from there, I was able to see a counselor much more regularly who would come onto campus to work with survivors. And she was just absolutely wonderful. She was a social worker. She was the first social worker I'd ever worked with. It was the first time I was realizing there was like a way to move through grief there was a way through to hold space for myself and what I had experienced and to do that with someone else I really trusted and also have a lot of community in that to have friends that I could say I'm having a really hard time I need to step back from this it was really challenging it was really challenging to have to say I can't do this anymore. I can't keep pushing myself. That turning point really happened my senior year where I feel like that was the first time I was recognizing a lot of my habits around how I react to trauma and stress and how I like go, 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 go because I was really scared.
0: Thank you for sharing that with us because, you know, that's not an easy process. So I'm really super glad that you had that community to be able to do that. And it's interesting because you had so many different things going on, right? So you had the overachievement stress thing that's so ingrained in our westernized culture. So being able to step away from that identity is not easy. And it's so many layers. And, you know, as a black person myself coming from the Caribbean, you know, education, you go, go, you get this. is such a linear path to whatever success means. And to be brave enough to say, I have to step down. Because you know, I've encountered folks who, you know, ten, twenty years down the line, are finally having these conversations, and so for you to be able to do that at that time in your life is pretty powerful. So I commend you for that.
1: Thank you. Um, and you know, I have to acknowledge that it also like speaks to how much privilege I had to be on a college campus that not every college campus is like that, but I had the resources to be able to take the time and get the help that I needed, which I'm also really grateful for.
0: So some of the steps that you took, you got connected to a therapist and started to process some of that trauma. Were there any other things that you started to do to help you further process and gain more balance into your life?
1: Yeah, I didn't go to formal therapy until consistently until my senior year of college, but that summer after the incident, I did start doing yoga for the first time. And I think my yoga practice is deeply, deeply spiritual. And I believe all yoga is very spiritual given its origins. And I think it came into my life when I really, really needed it. And it has never left me since. And after I graduated from undergrad, and moved to Boston, I was in that cycle again of doing a lot. And in therapy, my therapist now who I've been with for so long, she's a somatic therapist, um, and also an expressive arts therapist.
0: So before you continue not to interrupt you, I just want to make sure that our audience knows what somatic therapy is. Would you like to to kind of like explain
1: so somatic therapy is essentially the integration of our bodies, our breath, our relationship to our bodies while processing our experiences, be it trauma or everyday stress. But it's this assertment that like our bodies and our minds are connected and that we have a relationship to our bodies and that we're pretty disconnected from them in the Western world. And it allows us to process our emotions and feelings through that relationship of the mind and the body.
0: Yeah, and especially if you undergo serious trauma, somatic therapy is something what I recommend for all my clients who experience any kind of sexual assault because the whole thing is to be comfortable back into your body and to feel safe back into your body before you you start making outward connections. And somatic therapy is a very powerful, useful type of therapy for that process. And so, you know, like you said, breath work, meditation, visualization, even massage, once you get comfortable in that state, dancing, anything that provides sensation, because the whole point about trauma, right, is I don't want to feel. And so now you can practice that way and how to be and how to feel in a very safe way at your pace. So it's a beautiful process. But go ahead.
1: Exactly. Even talking about it just makes me so happy. But... Moving through somatic therapy, my yoga practice, expressive arts has utterly transformed me. And I don't think I would be at the place I am and be able to talk about it as easily as I can without having rebuilt that relationship to my body and feeling such a strong connection and safety in my body.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I'm so happy that you found somebody who's able to do that. So tell us, what does it feel when you're in those moments when you're having a difficult time because the work doesn't end? There's always highs and lows. Maybe the intensity lessens over time, but there are certain circumstances uh, that can bring you back there. So when you are in those difficult emotions, what does it feel like to do this kind of somatic work, whether it's breath work, whether it's yoga, whether it's just mindfulness meditation can you walk us through that feeling
1: I used to approach it in a way of like let me shut this off like let me shut this off if I feel it is going to overwhelm me and I will explode into a million pieces and now what it feels like is this safety in knowing that like okay let me let me feel everything let it be a full body experience be it if i'm crying if i am scared if i can feel my heart racing if i'm really anxious i'm able to really name the sensations that I feel in my body and let myself move through them. And I think what it feels like now is this trust that I can fall apart. I can feel everything fully and I will be okay. Like it is only temporary. It won't feel like this forever. And I think now I have so many tools to ground myself and remember that I'm in the present moment. You know, one of the most simple things I love doing, right, if I am feeling really anxious, is picking a number and a color and okay, the number is going to be two and the color is going to be blue and looking around the room and finding two blue things or doing the senses, right? Like five things you can see, four things you can touch and like working your way down. And so doing grounding techniques like that help as well. After I've like had this large wave of emotion, be it stress or like uh, having a
0: really hard argument. But when big
1: feelings come up, Remembering that I can handle it.
0: It's a beautiful explanation. I love that. So I want to transition to the community that you became a part of in Boston. When did you join You Good Sis? Can you tell us a little bit more about it and what made you gravitate towards it?
1: Yeah. So You Good Sis is a yoga collective based in Boston. You Good Sis was founded by Jaylee Montplaisir and Rach Jr. The space is specifically for Black, Indigenous, people of color, femmes, non-binary folks, queer folks. I think having BIPOC classes is so necessary because it allows us to be in physical or digital space with other people and like move away from this feeling of Being watched and judged and experiencing whiteness and that feeling of constraint that I know I've definitely felt in all white spaces that I might feel at work if I'm the only person of color there and moving your body, it is a really vulnerable act. But that was the first space I was like, wow, I can like be in community around yoga and I received a fellowship to do my yoga teacher training through You Good Sis, and there was just so much support.
0: What is it like practicing other kinds of mindfulness within that community?
1: I just went to one of Rachel's class this past weekend where we visualized all of us sitting on these clouds, these iridescent clouds in a circle formation with like thin veils between each of us. And Rach led us through this meditation where we considered all of our energies supporting one another while protecting our own. Rach said something in class that has really resonated with me, which is that when we rest for ourselves, we are resting for the wellness of everyone else that we are connected to and in community with, and that We need to carve out restorative time for ourselves because we live in inherent connection to one another.
0: No matter what you're going through, I feel like having a community is so, so crucial through the healing process.
1: You know, we need community. We need one another. All of us have a deep desire to be seen and to share ourselves with one another, whatever introverted, extroverted, Scale we lie on.
0: We need one another. Beautiful. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you. While Deborah's yoga practice was therapeutic for her, I do want to note that some mindfulness practices can be difficult for people with severe trauma. It can be too overwhelming if they haven't processed the trauma at all and aren't ready to tune into their feelings in a deep way. Remember, mindfulness is about sitting with those feelings. So a trauma-informed therapist or mindfulness coach can help safely guide you into your mindfulness journey. So Deborah talked about mindfulness practice in the community. But of course, you can do it on your own as well. In fact, there's an app for that. No, really, there are a ton of apps for that. But next, we're going to hear from Jud Brewer. He's a neuroscientist who created a mindfulness app called Unwinding Anxiety. We'll also be in conversation with Tara Healy, who runs a program at Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare that brings mindfulness into the workplace. Thank you, Tara and Judd, for joining us today. I'm really excited to dive deep into this topic of mindfulness, which is one of my favorite topics. Can you guys just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do, the kind of work you do, where you do this kind of work? so that we can get a better understanding of your expertise.
2: So my name is Tara Healy, and I'm the program director of our branded program is called Mind the Moment, but it's basically mindfulness education. And I do that for Point32 Health, which is the parent company of Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare.
3: And I'm Judd Brougham, the Director of Research and Innovation at the Mindfulness Center at Brown University. I'm an addiction psychiatrist and a neuroscientist, and also the Executive Medical Director of Behavioral Health at Sharecare.
0: So how would you define mindfulness, and how does curiosity play into mindfulness?
2: Mindfulness is a quality of mind that is awake and aware and that knows it. So that's kind of the first part. But the second part of the definition has to do with the attitude in the mind. So that's one of curiosity, receptivity, and interest to whatever is happening within and around.
3: I think that's a beautiful definition, but I just maybe I'll just double click on that attitudinal quality that Tara is talking about. In terms of curiosity, I think of it as a, as a superpower to help us see when we're prejudging something, when we're reacting to something, and to be able to, to step back and just really approach it with fresh eyes, with a curious perspective, instead of going, oh, no, going, oh, that attitudinal quality.
0: Yeah, I like that. And so whenever I think of mindfulness, I immediately think of meditation. What makes uh, meditation difficult or challenging for folks?
3: So I would say it's just misconceptions, it's fear. For example, when I first started practicing, you know, I was trained, you know, pay attention to your breath and when your mind wanders, bring it back. And I would sweat through t-shirts in the middle of winter trying to force myself to pay attention to my breath, being a good boy, you know, like I'll pay attention to my breath. That's not what mindfulness is about. You know, it's about helping us see our mind and how our mind works.
2: One thing that I say to people is that when you sit in formal meditation and you remove all the typical distractions, most of us feel some degree of anxiety. That is normal. So, cause sometimes people will say, Well, it's just not for me. My mind is racing when I'm sitting and I'm and I feel really anxious and Well, that's happening for me too. So (laughs) there's a way to actually approach that anxious feeling. Because when we are without distraction and we are formally sitting, there are a few things that happen that are common, sleepiness, anxiety, doubt that this is even doing anything. So it's like, well, when you sit and you feel anxious and you're using, let's say, breath or sound or body sensation, Every time you feel anxious, bring your attention to that physical feeling. See if you can receive it. It's like looking through a microscope. If you were looking through a microscope, you would look with receptivity. Well, mindfulness can be likened to an examination of the inner world. The way looking through a microscope is to the outer. So when we're sitting, it's like we become that scientist that's curious and receptive and it might be unpleasant. And that's all it is, is unpleasant.
0: How does mindfulness and meditation affect the person's mental health? And why does mindfulness help our mental health?
3: I think we go on all day about how mindfulness can help our mental health. So mindfulness has been shown in a number of studies now to help reduce anxiety, help people not get caught up in worry. Depression is one where there's been a lot of research showing that mindfulness helps with depression. For example, a program called Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy has so much evidence behind it now that the national health system in the UK has adopted it as a first-line treatment to help people with depression.
2: You know, what I would add, but very much in line, is that it really helps us relate to and engage with all aspects of our lives. And so there will always be things that we want, but we can't have and we will have things we wish we didn't. And it really gives us a way to work with the resistance to what is happening. And because the resistance adds another layer of angst to it, whatever is going on. And so we actually just learn to kind of soften that resistance and receive the experience. And through practice, we're able to receive it with more equanimity or more balance.
0: Anxiety has been said to be the, you know, number one condition that a lot of people are struggling with. So Judge, can you tell us a little bit more about your app based mindfulness program, Unwinding Anxiety?
3: Yes, anybody can download it from the App Store, the Google Play Store. Well, this was prompted by my own anxiety in terms of being able to help my patients with anxiety. And that's when I realized something that I hadn't learned in medical school, which was that anxiety can be driven like any other habit. So any habit forms a trigger, a behavior, and a result. And anxiety, the feeling of anxiety can trigger the behavior of worrying. So that mental behavior gives us this result where we feel like we're in control and whatnot. So long story short, we targeted that mechanism. We said, can we train people, and we use mindfulness to train people to be aware of those habit loops so that they can start mapping them out, they can see them clearly, and then they can use awareness, this curious awareness to ask, what do I get from this? Is worrying solving the problem? No. Is it keeping my family members safe? No. So they start to become disenchanted with the the behavior of worrying. And then they can bring in mindfulness as what I call the bigger, better offer, that BBO. So it trains people in this three-step process through 10-minute videos and animations and in-the-moment exercises on a daily basis where they go through like 30 days of of kind of systematic training where they start to build their skills, where they learn how their mind works and they learn how to work with their mind. And this is where we've done these studies where we got pretty significant results. In this study with generalized anxiety disorder, there's a term called number needed to treat, meaning how many patients you need to give a treatment to before one person benefits. With the best medications out there, that is 5.2, meaning one in five of my patients is gonna show a good response to treatment. With this study, it was 1.6. So pff, we were we were blown away by that. I love how you frame,
0: and I never thought of it that way, as like being anxious could be a habit. Do you have any specific anecdotes or stories of someone who has used those specific methods uh, that you described and found it to have really transformed their ability to cope with life?
3: There was a gentleman, that I saw in my clinic, he was about 40 years of age when I first started working with him. As he sat down and started taking a history, he was describing how when he would drive on the highway, he would get panic attacks because he felt like, as he described it, I'm in a speeding bullet. But his panic attacks became so strong and so often that he just started avoiding driving on the highway altogether. Long story short, he had full-blown panic disorder and he had full-blown generalized anxiety disorder. And he'd had anxiety for probably 30 years. It was started in childhood. He had a rough childhood with his father. So I sent him home with our Unwinding Anxiety app and I said, well, just start mapping out your habit loops. And he came back two weeks later for his first follow-up. And the first thing he said to me, oh, by the way, he was about 180 pounds overweight and had a bunch of weight-related health issues. He said, Doc, I lost 14 pounds. And he said, well, I was mapping out my habit loops and I realized that anxiety was triggering me to stress eat. And that eating wasn't actually fixing my anxiety, but it was making me feel bad because I know that I need to lose weight. And so over the next five to six months, he used these same practices. He lost over a hundred pounds. In a non effortful way, I want to highlight that because mindfulness is not about forcing ourselves to do anything. It's just simply about being curious oh, what's happening? Is this helping me? Is stress eating helping my anxiety? No. And we become disenchanted with those things. So it's much easier to let them go. So he lost a bunch of weight. And I kid you not, um, walking out on the sidewalk, this car pulls up. And a guy rolls down his window. It's my patient. And he goes, Hey, Dr. Judd. I'm an Uber driver now. I'm on the way to the airport to pick up somebody. I was thinking, game on. This is amazing.
0: That's an incredible story. So now, Tara, I would love to hear more about the uh, Mind the Moment workshops that you do.
2: Yeah, so well, we started back in 2005 and just offering programs to our employees. And the first one we started with was the six-week introduction to mindfulness. But over the years, and I think because the science, um, thanks to Judd and Many other folks who are helping legitimize this practice—it's grown so much. So we have about twelve per diem instructors that work for us. I think we've been in about two hundred companies with our program, and there's a lot of individual people who are saying yet that this has improved my ability to talk to my coworkers or talk to my boss or to have more balance with things that are unsettling for me about my job. So. I would say, and I always think, you know, individuals changing creates a collective that changes. You can find us at harvardpilgrim.org slash mindfulness for more information. We also are on YouTube on Mind the Moment. We have some free offerings on our Harvard Pilgrim forward slash living well at home site. So every Tuesday and Thursday morning from eight 30 to nine, we offer guided meditation and discussion. Anybody in the world can join and people from around the world have joined. So those are available and open to anyone.
0: Can you take us through like a 30 second or one minute meditation or mindfulness yes. practice right now?
2: Yes, yes, Absolutely. All right, so I would invite folks, uh, as long as you're not driving and you're in a place that is conducive to practice, and you can sit or stand. So whatever feels best for you, just take a moment to assess your body. So just kind of check in, whole body awareness. And we'll begin by letting go of all that has happened so far today and release anticipation of what's to come and surrender into the support of the surface, maintaining a spine that is straight, but not stiff. And take a couple of deep breaths on your own as a way to settle any surface tension and see if you can make that exhalation a bit longer than the inhalation. So go ahead and take two breaths. just allow a natural rhythm of inhaling and exhaling to begin and notice where in the body the inhalation and the exhalation is most prominent. It could be the rise and fall of the abdomen or the chest or perhaps the air entering or leaving the nose. Just for the next few moments, use that as the anchor to help stabilize attention. So as the mind wanders and you notice Just escort the attention back to the breath sensation in the body, where you notice it the most. And notice where the mind is and releasing thought and returning to breath. come back from three to one and when I arrive at one if your eyes were closed you can open so three two and one and take a moment to just look around the room maybe take a moment to stretch a little bit
0: beautiful well thank you Tara thank you so much we've gotten the idea here that there are a ton of ways to learn about mindfulness. It's everywhere. There are apps, YouTube channels, yoga studios, therapists who specialize in it, and workplace workshops about mindfulness. And a mindfulness practice can be a powerful, simple, and often free way for anyone to manage their mental health. That's probably a big reason mindfulness practices are becoming more popular at schools, too. When I was a counselor at a middle school, we actually piloted a mindfulness program, and it was really effective. When students would get frustrated in class, rather than giving up or acting out, they had learned to take a deep breath, close their eyes, and slow down. Because so many students develop that habit of slowing down, looking inward, and noticing how they were feeling before taking any action, it honestly changed the energy of the whole school. Individual change creates collective change. So whether it's just you on your sofa or you in a room full of other people, fellow students, coworkers, or yogis, take a breath, be curious, be present, be mindful. Learn more about the You Good Sis Collective at YouGoodSis.co. That's.co, com. Join a mind the moment free meditation or learn about the workshops at harvardpilgrim.org forward slash mindfulness. Or learn more about the Unwinding Anxiety app at unwindinganxiety.com. Visit globe.com forward slash turning points, one word, for more information on mental health care and resources. To hear one more story about a turning point, join us for a final bonus episode. We'll celebrate Marathon Monday with Olympic gold medal winner, Joan bonnoit Samuelson. She's also a Boston Marathon winner, of course. Joan says running and a deep connection to nature has helped her to stay balanced throughout the ups and downs of her athletic career. Thanks to our production team at PAW People, Maria Louisa Tucker, Brian Rivers, Matt Sav, Eric Zeller, and Rachel King. And special thanks to Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare and Tufts Health Plan and the Studio B team at Boston Globe Media. Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare and Tufts Health Plan are committed to guiding and supporting members on their behavioral health journeys, connecting them to the services, tools, and support they need.